It's so good to see you guys. I'm really excited to get to chat with you again today. And I want to kind of dive into a week two. I know last week we talked about relational evangelism and that Jesus' invitation into the kingdom is always relational and always personal. And so this week will kind of be the how of how do we do this? How do we connect with people relationally and share the gospel in a relational way? What things do we see throughout scripture? But before I jump into that, I want to take a quick poll of the room, okay? So if you're in here this morning and you are a type A, organized, like Myers J. Briggs type personality, or Myers Briggs J type personality, could you raise your hand for me? I want to see where my organized people are. Yes, awesome. So if your hand is not raised right now, look around. These are your friends. If you need help, if you're moving, these are your friends to help you out, right? So that is me. I am a high J on the Myers-Briggs. I'm very organized. I'm a type A personality. And because of that, I hate losing things. I hate losing things. I'm the type of person, I have a spot for everything. And when I use the thing, I put it back in the spot that it goes in. And when I'm looking for the thing, I know exactly where to look for it because everything has a spot. And so when I lose something, I'm freaking out. And so I want to give you a little bit of a walkthrough of Jasmine's mental journey of what happens when she loses something. So the first thing is like, I'm like, okay, it's going to be okay. I'm going to find it. I know where I put my things. I'm just going to look in those places. So the first thing I do is I go and I look into the places that I normally have my things. And when I can't find it there, I'm still like, you know what? It's okay. It's okay. I'm sure if I just like retrace my steps, I can go back to the places that I was just at and I'm sure it'll be there. And then if I still can't find it, I tell myself again, you know what? Like, it's okay. I'm sure it'll show up. I'm sure tomorrow I'll wake up and I'll find it. And at some point in that trying to calm myself down, I freak out, like freak out. And I'm like, oh my gosh, like, okay, I don't know, I don't know, maybe maybe I should look underneath the couch or maybe I should go to this coffee shop that I haven't been to in three months because maybe I left it there or maybe I should like look in the fridge. I just start looking in weird places for the thing that I can't find. And then at that point, if I still can't find what I'm looking for, I go into despair. I'm so upset and kind of have like this whole like mopey attitude, like walking around my house, like, I don't know where my stuff is. Like, this is crazy. This doesn't happen to me. And usually in that state of despair, freaking out, not really knowing what to do, really hopeless, I'll look up and find that the thing that I was looking for was hidden in plain sight. Has that ever happened to any of you before where you're looking for something and then you look up and it's like, oh my goodness, it's on the counter. Or, oh my goodness, it's sitting on my car seat. I've had multiple times where I've literally searched underneath like the chairs in the back seat of my car and the thing that I'm looking for is sitting on the front seat. Terrible experience. But this is kind of what happens when I lose things and I hate it. But honestly, in thinking about what it's like for me to lose things, especially as I'm starting to think about packing to go back to school, I'm like, okay, I gotta make sure I have all the things in the right spot and put them back in the suitcase that I brought them in so that I can be ready to go back to school. In thinking about that, it's made me think this week, man, sometimes the things that we look for and search for the hardest are actually hidden in plain sight. And Jesus is the kind of God who's hidden in plain sight. One of my favorite quotes from church history is from this person named St. Augustine. And this is what he says. He says, you have made us for yourselves, for yourself, and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. I love that quote. God has made us for himself, and our hearts are restless until they rest in him. And guys, God is actually really, really easy to find. Often it's us 
that overcomplicates this process of searching for him. And because we're made for him, when we can't find him, we start to search in weird places, or we stop searching at all. And friends, this is the predicament of the lost. They're having this search for God. They're made for Jesus. All of us are made for Jesus. But when we don't know what we're looking for or we can't find it, we look in weird places or we stop looking at all. And so this morning, I want to tell you a story from scripture of a group of people who were made for Jesus and were looking in all of the wrong places until an ambassador of Jesus came to town and kind of flipped things upside down. And so that story is in Acts chapter 17, starting in verse 16. So if you have your Bible with you, you can totally read along with me. This is what it says. Now, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, his spirit was deeply troubled within him as he observed that the city was full of idols. So he was reasoning in the synagogue with Jews and with the God-fearing Gentiles and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be present. So just to give you a little bit of context, we see here in this book that Paul goes to the city of Athens. And in case you're not familiar with like ancient history and what was going on in Athens, Athens was kind of the academic and scholarship and philosophic center of the Greek world. It was kind of like if New York City is like a big center in the United States, Athens was like that for the ancient Greek world. And In the city of Athens, it says that Paul was deeply troubled as he walked through the city and saw that there were idols everywhere. Some historians actually report that in the city of Athens, there were more idols than there were people. And it was easier to see and find an idol than it was to find a human being. And so as Paul is going through the city of Athens and walking around and experiencing this culture, he's deeply troubled. He's like, man, like I see more idols than I even see people. And this really troubled him. And so in the text, it says that what he does is he goes into the town square. He goes into the synagogue and he begins to reason with people. And this word reason is really important. What this word reason means is that he's asking questions. He's having conversations. He's trying to figure out what is it that they think and that they believe and how can I help them come to different conclusions, right? He's not talking at them. He's not telling them that they're wrong, but he's actually reasoning with them. And reasoning involves very careful listening and very intentional questions. So now this is what the next verse says. And some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers as well were conversing with him. Some were saying, what could this scavenger of tidbits want to say? Others, he seems to be a proclaimer of strange deities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and they brought him to the Oropagus saying, may we know what this new teaching which you are proclaiming is? For you are bringing some strange things to our ears. So we want to know what these things mean. So as Paul is reasoning with these people, he's asking questions, two groups of people get really curious about the things that he's saying to them. And those two groups of people were the Epicureans and the Stoics. And just to give you a little bit of context for who those two groups of people were, the Epicureans were a group of philosophers who studied under someone named Epicurus. And he taught that the highest virtue in life was the satisfaction of one's own desires. So the whole point of living is to be happy and to satisfy your desires. That was the one form of teaching that he was up against. Sound familiar? And then the other group of people was the Stoics. 
And Stoic philosophy taught that whoever is not influenced by inner feelings and emotions or outer circumstances has complete control over himself and enjoys the highest happiness in life. So essentially, if you don't feel anything, you don't have to feel bad. So don't feel anything ever at all was kind of this philosophy of Stoicism, which these two philosophies kind of sound kind of similar to some things that at least I've heard as I've engaged in the world around me. And so as Paul is reasoning with these philosophers, asking questions, getting to know them, trying to see what it is that they really believe, they get really curious. And so it says that they took him to the Areopagus, which was kind of the supreme court of ancient Greek culture. And throughout Greek mythology, it was actually taught that some of the major Greek gods were tried at this location of the Areopagus. And so they didn't take Paul here to try him, to put him in prison or anything like that. They took him here because this was a massive location that people would often come to when they saw someone being brought into this location. And so they brought him here because they wanted to hear more. They said, who is this God that you're proclaiming and talking about? We want to know more. Tell us more. So his reasoning brought them questions that made them want to hear more. And so then this is what it says in verse 22. So Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, men of Athens, I can see that you are very religious in all aspects. For while I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship, I also found an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. So as Paul is engaging with these people and they bring him to the Areopagus, the first thing that he says is, Hey, I see that you are very religious, which... I mean, they were. They had all sorts of idols and gods that they were worshiping. But instead of immediately accusing them and attacking them for their idol worship, he kind of finds this point of connection, this point of common ground saying, I'm religious too, and I can see that you're religious. And then he goes even further to identify one of their false gods that they worshiped, which was the unknown god. He identifies this, and he says, hey, I actually want to tell you about the unknown god. And so what he's doing here is he's actually setting up the gospel in a framework that they will understand. And so I'm going to read on. This is what he says about the unknown God. The God who made the world and everything that is in it, since he is the Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made by human hands, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and boundaries of their habitation, that they would seek God, if perhaps they might feel around for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. So what he's doing here, like I said, is he's setting up the gospel in a framework that they can understand. And what he says is this unknown God that you don't know anything about, I'm going to tell you about him today. This God created everything. This God doesn't dwell in temples made by human hands. This God appoints people's times. This God is bigger than all of your other gods. What he's doing is he's speaking liberating truth into their areas of actual pain and brokenness. And this is what I mean by that. As he talks about the unknown God, he begins to contrast this good God to the gods that they are familiar with and the gods that they worship. So he's saying, though you worship your gods in temples 
you don't have to go into a temple to worship this God. This God's actually accessible to you. Though you relentlessly serve your gods to the point where it was a common practice for them to even sacrifice their children to their gods. So there was a lot of hard work that they had to do to serve their gods in the ancient Greek culture. Though you relentlessly serve your God, this God does not need to be served by human hands. In fact, he's interested in giving things to you, not taking things from you. He says, though you've worked to create lives of significance for yourself and you've studied countless philosophies and you've been trying to learn as much as you can and you've been frantically trying to build these great lives for yourself, this God is interested in writing your story. This God has good things planned for you and he wants you to seek him and find him. In fact, he's not far out of your reach. One interesting thing about ancient religions is that Ancient religions required a lot of seeking, but never any finding. And so as Paul speaks to the people in Athens about this unknown God, about the true God, he's showing them, you guys have been seeking after all of these other things and never finding what you're looking for. But I think I know what you're looking for. And I think that he's hidden in plain sight. And then he says something awesome in the next verse. In verse 28, he says this. For in him we live and move and exist, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are also his descendants. Therefore, since we are, his descend- since we are the descendants of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by human skill and thought. So as he creates this framework for who God is and what God is like, he now shows them, hey, you're actually included in this gospel. God's actually inviting you into this. In fact, I know that you don't know this. I know that no one's ever told you this, but you actually live and move and have your being in God. I know that you didn't know that and you've been looking in other places, but what you're looking for is hidden in plain sight. You're actually living in this God that you don't know who's inviting you into something so, so great. And then after he creates this framework and shows them that they're included in the beautiful message that they don't even know yet, now he addresses their idolatry. But he does it in a really interesting way. Instead of saying, hey, you're wrong, stop worshiping idols, he says, I'm going to read it again just so we can let this sink in. Therefore, since we are the descendants of God... We ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by human skill and thought. So what he's saying here is because you are descendants of God, because you are included in what God is wanting to do, it's silly to think that these gold and silver and stone idols can fully represent the divine nature, right? He's saying because of who you are, you actually don't need this stuff. You're actually too good for this stuff but I think I know what you're looking for. And in verse 30, this is where he calls them to repentance. He says, so having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now proclaiming to mankind that all people everywhere are to repent because he has set a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all people by raising him from the dead. So, As he calls them to repentance, this is what he says. There's a man who God rose from the dead, and he is what you're looking for. 
So change your mind about everything that you've believed. Don't run after these silly things. Don't build idols out of gold or silver or any of that stuff anymore. You're too good for that. There's a man who rose from the dead for you. Recalibrate your mind to what's always been true about you. You belong to a God that's better than you know. And then he goes on and says this in verse 32. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some began to scoff. But others said, we shall hear from you again concerning this. So Paul went out from among them. But some men joined him and believed. Among them were Dionysius, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. So this, I love this verse. I know that this verse kind of seems like it's just tying up the loose ends of the story, but I love this verse because it says here, some people believed his message, but not everyone did. I know in my own experience with sharing the gospel with people, I have this expectation of like, if I do this right, everyone is going to say yes. You know, like I've kind of had that expectation and that has not been my experience. And so it's encouraging to know like Paul, one of the greatest missionaries of all time, shared the gospel in this beautiful, amazing way. And still not everyone said yes, but some did. And that is a huge, huge win. And so I want to take a deeper look into what Paul is doing. How does he go about communicating the gospel? What are the specific tools that he's using to help people understand who God is, what God is inviting them to, and what he's done through Jesus? And so we see Paul doing four really important things in this passage. The first is we see him reasoning with people as he engages with the people in the town who don't yet know Jesus, the text says that he begins to reason with them. So he begins to ask them questions. He begins to hear their stories. He begins to try and figure out like, where are you at? What are you looking for? What is it that you believe? And then he begins to really, really listen to that and formulate specific questions that would get them thinking about their belief system. So he reasons with people. The next thing that he does is he relates to them. And we see that when he says, hey, I see that you are very religious in all respects. Me too. Although their religions were not the same at all, Paul found this point of connection and he chose to relate to the people living here, showing them, hey, like, I'm not that much different from you. We actually have some things in common. Now, the next thing that we see him doing is comforting them. And I know that it doesn't immediately look like this from kind of what the text is saying, but what Paul is doing as he begins to speak into the areas where they're believing lies about their gods and about themselves, he begins to speak truth into those areas where they're believing lies and even into those areas where those lies have caused them great pain. People had to make huge sacrifices to build these great temples for their gods. People made really painful sacrifices to appease the gods. And so as Paul reveals to them, hey, this is the true God, you don't need to do that stuff for him. He has a better way for you. He's speaking comfort and truth and life into them. And then the fourth thing that he does is he includes them. He says, you actually belong to this God. You just don't know it. You belong in this relationship between the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit and in this body I want you to be a part of this. He includes them by saying, in God, you live and move and have your being. So wake up to that. This is what's most true about you. And Paul recognizes something really important as he engages with the people living in Athens, and it's this. 
People only serve idols because they haven't found what they're looking for. They only serve idols because they don't know what they're looking for. They don't know that it's Jesus that they're looking for. And so what do they do? They look in weird places. They look under the couch. They look in the fridge. They look in weird places. Or they stop looking at all. And so when you are looking for something and you can't find what you're looking for, two things happen, right? When you're looking in weird places, that's kind of the world of sin. And when you stop looking at all and you give up, that's when despair sets in. But as ambassadors of Christ, we have the joy of revealing to a hurting world that the thing that they're looking for is actually hidden in plain sight. I know that last week we talked about what it looks like to be an ambassador and to kind of have like international relations across from, like from the kingdom of light to the kingdom of darkness. And we talked about how God desires to tenderly plead through our own lips asking people, come back to God, be reconciled to him. That is what Jesus is longing to tenderly plead through our lips. That's what we talked about last week. And so how do we do that? I think we can do what Paul did. We can reason with people. We can listen to them, gain perspective, ask insightful, non-judgmental questions. And what we're doing as we reason with people is we're trying to figure out what is it that they are looking for? Everyone is made for Jesus to know him, to live in communion with him, to be fathered by God. But some people don't know it yet. And so when they don't know it yet, they begin to kind of try and satisfy that desire by looking for something else. And so as we reason with people, we want to determine what is it that they are looking for. Maybe it's value. Maybe it's worth. Maybe it's success. Maybe it's healing from a childhood wound. But what is it that they are looking for? then the next thing that we can do is relate to people, which is the opposite of accusing people. So we are identifying with the good in them. What aspects of Jesus are already showing up in their life, and how can you encourage and speak life into that area? There's good in everyone. And so how can we relate to those things that are good? How can we find common ground with people? And then the next thing is to comfort people. This is speaking truth into areas where lies have caused them pain. And so the question that we're after in thinking about comforting people is, what is it that's hurting them? What is it? And I'll be the first to say, sin hurts. Whether we like it or not, sin, whether we want to acknowledge that or not, sin hurts. And so maybe it's something really obvious. Maybe it's a lie that they're believing and they're kind of walking out the all the different aspects and fruits of that lie that they're believing. But what is it that's hurting them? As we seek to comfort people and speak truth into areas of pain in their lives, that's a really important question to consider. And then the final thing is to include people. By including people, we're helping them see that they already live and move and have their being in God that they've actually been feeling around for him, like Paul says in this passage, trying to find him. They just don't know it yet. And including people, we're helping them realize you are made for Jesus. And the reason why you felt restless is because you haven't found rest yet in him. And so in including people, we're also helping them see, man, God has been working in your life, whether you knew it or not. There are aspects of our lives, even before we know Jesus, where he's at work, doing things, revealing his love to us. And for those who don't yet know Jesus, they just don't know that it's God. 
but he's always the author of good things. Every good thing that we experience is a gift from God, even if we don't know it yet. And so a question to consider as we look to include people is, what is God already doing in their life and what is he desiring to invite them into? And in this process of answering those questions, we have the joy of telling people, hey, I think I know what you're looking for. I think I know what you're looking for. And it's actually hidden in plain sight. And so as we get to know people relationally, we'll get to discover the answers to all of these different questions. But we can't really know the answers to these questions without really getting to know people. So I want to tell you a little story about a time that I've gotten to walk this out in a really cool way. So I know last week I was telling you guys about my crazy friends, right, and how my friends like to play listening prayer games because they're crazy. So I want to tell you another story. Another thing that my crazy friends like to do is every once in a while we'll be like, hey, like, let's go to the mall and pray for people. I know that's kind of crazy, but my friends are like, yeah, like, let's, like, go to the mall and, like, just, like, encourage people, like, see who we can encourage today, see who we can pray over, see if God is highlighting anyone to us. So a couple years ago, I went to the mall with my friends at ORU, and we, I was with one friend in particular, his name is Matt, and I don't know if you guys know anyone who is just, like, crazy about sharing the gospel with people, but Matt is one of those people. We go all kinds of places together with our friend group, and, like, any time we stop at a gas station, we're normally there for 30 minutes or more because Matt goes inside, starts talking to some random person at the gas station, and then, like, we're all sitting in the parking lot like, hey, like, where's Matt? Like, it's been, like, 20 minutes. One of us will go inside. The person's, like, crying, giving their life to Jesus, and Matt's like, yes! So... There have been times on our little road trips where it's like, okay, we're stopping at the gas station. Matt, you're not going inside. We've done that before because it's just, it's a lot sometimes. And so we're at the mall. I'm walking around with my friend Matt, and we see these two people. And both of us kind of felt like, man, like we feel like we're supposed to talk to them. So we walked up to them and we're like, hey, like, how are you guys today? Starting with normal, not weird questions, right? Like, how are you today? Um, And... As we're talking to these guys, just like getting to know them, like, what are you passionate about? Um, I had this cool experience with the Lord where as we were talking to these two guys, Matt was kind of heading up the conversation and I was kind of just like listening, right? Really trying to figure out like, what is it that they're after? What is it that they're looking for? What's going on in their hearts and in their minds and in their lives? Just kind of just listening. And as I was doing that, the Lord showed me this picture of one of the guys that we were talking to as a kid drawing like shoes, like designing like shoes in a little like sketchbook. He was like drawing these pictures of shoes and like clothes and stuff. I saw that picture and I was like, that's really cool. And so I was like asking the Lord, God, like, what does that mean? Why are you showing me this? And he was like, oh, like he has all these creative dreams to design things in the clothing industry. And I was like, that's really cool. Um, And the father was like, I'm all about that. I love that. That's a gifting that I put inside of him. And I'm like, oh, that's really cool too, God. And then the next picture that I saw was this picture of his mom when he was really young telling him that he was stupid and would never amount to anything. And as I saw that, my heart just broke, just broke. And so I was kind of like praying through, like, is this something that I should say to him? Because this is kind of deep. Is this something that, like, I should just, like, pray over? But I really felt like the Lord wanted me to say something about it. So I was like, okay, okay, cool. I can, I can say something. It's fine. I'll say something. Um, And so as we're talking, I kind of was like, hey, man, like, 
I feel like the Lord is kind of showing me that he has these really cool dreams for your life. And these are things that he's placed inside of you, that you are created to be creative. And you've got this passion for like drawing and designing clothing and shoes. And the Lord loves that about you. He thinks that's so cool. And he placed that desire inside of you because he wants to walk that journey out with you. And as I'm telling him this, his face starts to light up like, oh my goodness, like, how did you know that? You know? And Then after that, I kind of steered in a little bit of a different direction. And I was like, but man, I also feel like the Lord is saying that when you were young, your mom didn't really encourage those dreams within you. And she maybe told you that you weren't smart enough to do the things that you've had dreams about doing. But that is not what's true about you. What's true about you is that God placed these dreams in you for a reason. And he wants to walk them out with you. And nothing that she or anyone else has said to you is strong enough to overpower what God is wanting to do in your life. You're gifted, you're creative, you're not dumb, you're not stupid, you're not incapable of this stuff. God is really excited about the desires that he's placed inside of you. And so as I began to share this stuff with him, he just like begins to like melt. It was really sweet. And we got to pray over them. I'm not one to like force people to make a decision for Jesus on the spot. That's not really my MO. But we just got to pray over him. And like, it was really cool to see how curious they were. And they asked us like, how can we connect more with God? Like, what, what can we do? And so we got them kind of connected to some churches in the area and gave them some resources. And it was a really awesome, sweet moment. But all of that to say is as we speak truth and identity over people, God has this way of forming them into new creations. And he has this way of making them realize how silly and frantic their searching has been when he's been there all along, hidden in plain sight. And so as we share the gospel with people, as we reason with them, relate with them, comfort them, include people, share the joy of the God who is hidden in plain sight with them, we kind of have two paths that we can take as we do this. The first is the path of accusation, where we say, hey, you're looking for something, but you're looking in all the wrong places. You shouldn't be looking in those places. Those are wrong places. The other path that we can take is the gospel of inclusion, where we're saying, hey, I think I know what you're looking for. You're looking for good reasons. You're looking because you're actually created to find God. You live and move and have your being in him. And I think I know what you're looking for. So there's these two different paths. But if we view God as the accuser, our understanding of the gospel will always be one of accusation and we'll kind of lean towards presenting the gospel in a way where we tend to accuse people. And I'll be the first to say, if our starting point for the gospel is accusation, that might be the accuser speaking through us and not the father. If our starting point for sharing the gospel is trying to convince people that they're guilty, that they're bad, that they're sinners, we might not be fully presenting the gospel in the way that really, really fits within the character of God. In John 17, or in John 3, verse 17, I know you thought I was going to read John 3, 16, but John 3, 17 says, For God did not send his Son into the world to judge the world, but so that the world might be saved through him. The one who believes in him is not judged. The one who does not believe in him has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. The first time I read this verse, I was kind of confused. Like, I was like, what do you mean, like, the one who does not believe 
in Jesus has been judged already because he doesn't believe in his name. Like, what does that mean? And I, a couple years ago, read this book by C.S. Lewis called The Great Divorce. How many of you guys are C.S. Lewis fans? Anyone in here? I love, yes, I love C.S. Lewis. So I read this book by C.S. Lewis called The Great Divorce. And he has this quote in there that I feel like gives this verse some clarity. It's really fascinating. He says this, hell is a state of mind and every state of mind left to itself Every shutting up of the creature within the dungeon of its own mind in the end is hell. But heaven is not a state of mind. Heaven is reality itself. All that is fully real is heavenly. So Jesus comes to us with this invitation of inclusion saying, I'm the one that you've been looking for live and move and have your being in me. This is heaven. This is what's real about you. This is what's real about the world. This is the fulfillment of all of your deepest longings. And worship team, you guys can come back up. So in finding what we long for in Jesus, we stop looking in weird places and we overcome the despair of feeling like we'll never find what we're looking for at all. And guys, this is what finding Jesus does to a person. We get to be the ones now who reveal that Jesus is the God who's hidden in plain sight. As we come to find all of our deepest longings found in Jesus, as we come to see who he is as a loving father, as one who believes in us, as one who places good gifts in us and wants to walk those out with us, We find man like he is this God who's hidden in plain sight. And we have the joy of revealing to the world that he is better than they thought. He's better than they know. And they've been looking for him all along. So I want to pray for you this morning. Father, thank you that you are a God who is better than we know. And Lord, you are just after the hearts of those who don't know you yet. Your deepest desire is to show us, Father, what is real, what's real about us, what's real about you. God, there's dreams that you've placed within the hearts of your people that you just long to walk out with them. And so, Lord, I pray for us this morning that you would give us the eyes to see the good in people, that you would give us hearts of compassion that are able to easily relate with those who don't know you. Lord, would you give us hearts that aren't offended by even the idols that this current culture falls into worship towards. Give us hearts of compassion. Lord, we wanna be representations of who you are to a broken world. And so Holy Spirit, we invite you, Father, we invite you to show us what's going on inside of us so that you can form us into these beautiful ambassadors that are able to relate to people who know how to reason with your wisdom and your kindness with people, who are quick to comfort people and quick to include and invite people in. 
Father, we invite you to form us into people who carry your message in that way. Only you can do that. And so while it's good to learn new things and learn new strategies for sharing the gospel, God, you have to be the ones to do, you have to be the one to do a heart deep work in us. So that when we interact with people who don't yet know you, Jesus, they would see you in our eyes. That they would hear your love and kindness in our voices. That they would feel your tenderness and your kindness and your affection in our embrace. That they would feel welcomed into the family of God as we welcome them into our lives in the context of relationship. Help us do that. We want to be formed into all that you've always dreamed of us becoming, Father. And so help us become that. In Jesus' name.